I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. You are mining your own life for content. Sam has found a way to sort of monetize the most traumatic things that have ever happened to her. We watch every element of their lives unfold, eagerly awaiting the next update, with adoration and envy in equal measure. From where we're sitting, social media influencers live such perfect lives that it can be difficult to imagine how vulnerable they must feel and how flawed they can be. In the new book, Idol, the cult of celebrity influencers is challenged, running the tagline, not everyone we put on a pedestal deserves to be there. Idol documents the fall of Samantha Miller, a health and wellness influencer whose three million adoring fans begin to question their loyalty to her. Through the book, we see Sam's Instagram following tick down like a clock as more and more people jump ship. This is a novel that questions our relationship with technology, our idea of memory and self-perception, and our understanding of truth. Louise O'Neill is the book's author, and I'm delighted to say she's my guest today. Chapter 1. I Can't Seem to Stop Let me start by setting the scene. In the throes of fame, Samantha decides to use her platform to speak her truth, writing an essay about her sexual awakening as a teenager with female best friend Lisa. This is a story she's never told before and it goes viral. But then, years since they last spoke, Lisa gets in touch to say she doesn't remember it that way at all. Her memory of that night is far darker. Social media clearly plays a huge role in Samantha's journey, which is no surprise since Louise has had her own tumultuous relationship with social media too. I mean, I think in the beginning, I loved social media. Like, you know, particularly Twitter. I think that for... Anyone who's a writer, I suppose Twitter is often the the favoured social media site because, you know, it's about words and and often there were people on there that were so clever and funny. And, and also, I mean, I learned a lot. You know, I think I was following people who had life experiences that were very, very different to mine, you know, who who grew up in very different places or moved through the world in different bodies. And, and I suppose that exposure to those ideas really expanded my own sort of awareness of the world. But I suppose, you know, I think I could see with every, let's say, thousand followers that I got, that it became less fun. It began to feel very toxic. And it wasn't just that I suppose that I felt like Twitter was quite a negative space, but I think the way in which I was interacting with it felt, I I don't know, I I think I felt like I was kind of feeding into that toxicity. And it became quite addictive, you know, even like the good parts of it and the negative aspects of it, like both of them began to feel quite addictive. And, you know, I had suffered from an eating disorder um, for years and I often sort of think that they were quite similar in that I was like, this is bad for me and I this makes me feel terrible, but I can't seem to stop. So I went on sort of an extended um, social media break uh, for about 18 months and I'm not back on Twitter. But um, yeah, it was incredible, I think, the difference it made um, to my mental health. And then obviously when I you know, began write, writing Idol, like, of course, I think I was interested in exploring this because 
it does feel like almost like a brave new world, you know, and um, I suppose we really know so little about kind of the long term impact um, that being on social media and, and living our lives online, like what that is going to look like for us in, you know, 10, 20, you know, 30 years. And it just felt, I suppose, very, there was just, it felt very rich um, in terms of exploration in, in narrative. Um, and I suppose I hope anyone who reads Idol will, <laughs> will, will feel the same. It's certainly a central part of the narrative. The declining Instagram follower count that Sam has is very much baked into the story. It's almost a character in its own right, isn't it? The Instagram follower yeah. count becomes, you know, a driving force. I'll come back to the notion of self-destruction later on, because I think we all have the capacity for self-destruction within us. Most of us manage to keep it under check. Sam doesn't. Sam goes on a pretty immediate journey. I think it's only the first part of the first chapter where she seems in control. And then the second, her manager whisks her off stage and into an emergency crisis meeting. Every step seems to take her closer to the cliff edge and this, you know, this capacity for self-destruction. So we open with this notion of Sam, a woman that has everything, who has this devoted following, and then this voice from the past enters. Now, what you do there is perfectly set up a conflict, which is this could go badly for Sam. And the most sensible thing would be for Sam to let other people deal with that. And the first choice you give her is a choice that she makes, which I, as a reader, was going, no, don't do that. That's a terrible thing to do. And yet as a writer, I'm fully committed. I'm fully on board because, you know, what we want is characters making decisions that we disagree with. And that's what happens. She does the thing that you should never do. She goes back to her hometown, which, by the way, is suffocatingly claustrophobic, as all hometowns are. That's the point of it. And it goes very badly, very quickly. When you first kind of came up with this, that whole two-step, as I'll call it, of two people, an event in the past, they have different recollections of it. That's the central part of the conflict, isn't it? Yeah. And I think that's a really common experience. Like I have, I mean, obviously not to this extent, but like, you know, I have a sister who is, um, there's a year and nine months between us. So like we're very close in age. And often when we talk about our childhood, it feels like we grew up in two different houses. And we will sometimes have this experience where I'll say, oh, do you remember when I got this dog and I said we that I wanted to call her Megan? And Michelle would say, no, no, that was my dog and I called her Megan. And then I think, oh, maybe that is true. It, it, it's, it's very strange. And I suppose like memory is so fallible and yet our memories are so important to us because our memories inform who we are and sort of our sense of ourselves as people. And I think for Sam, who so much of her sense of self is really based on this idea of, I am a good person. I am a good person, uh, you know, and she has this kind of grandiose vision of of her 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 empire and, and wellness and, and helping young women recover and heal and self-actualize. And, you know, she really feels like she's a force for good in the world. And I think when Lisa comes back in and threatens to undermine that, by saying, no, actually, your memory and your sense of who you are is incorrect. Like, it's so destabilizing that 
Samantha feels so threatened by this that she will go to any lengths in order to maintain her memory, her story and her truth. Almost as if the validation from the very small community in the hometown of Benford becomes more important to her than the millions of others that she's already got. She kind of leaves them to one side to to go back to her childhood and almost she almost demands, she almost bullies her way back in and tries to be part of that gang. But of course, that's impossible, isn't it? So much time has passed. Everybody has changed. You can't really go back. All right, can I just say something, Mark? It really made me laugh when you said that there because I hadn't realised, and you're totally right with that, but I just had this realisation that often when something exciting will happen to me in my career, I'll think of people that I went to school with and I'll think, right. oh, they hear that. And then I have to catch myself right. and go, who like who cares like it doesn't matter but it's very funny because I actually didn't put that together until you said it I was like oh god (laughs) that sounds familiar actually well I think I think we would all recognize that we would all think yeah there is a particular asshole in third grade I would Mm -hmm. I would very much like to know (laughs) about you know this big success I've 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 just had I mean that 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 comes screaming through in Sam and I think there's a little bit of that in all of us, but she marches straight back into that community and almost demands validation, doesn't she? Yeah, I was, you know, she's just this. She's almost terrifyingly charismatic. Someone you read it and um, read it said she was. She's almost like a supervillain. And I was like, yeah, there is something in that. And I think, as you said, you know, like when these allegations break, there is this very like quite grubby meeting with the with the members of the Shakti board and they're like okay you have to get off social media we're going to post a kind of a very vague you know statement we're going to make a large donation to a rape crisis center and like this will blow over like these things always blow over like it doesn't matter and Samantha is completely incapable of sort of taking their advice um and she says well what will my girls do without me but really i think it's what will she do without that validation and without that i think all that kind of i suppose being seen in that way by all of her you know all of her followers and i also think you know because she's such a proponent of let's say the law of attraction and um, that you're creating your life experience she sort of feels like she has to get in and micromanage this situation and that that's the only way that it will I suppose be resolved and of course you know she makes everything um so much worse but there's also a part of me that thinks despite everything Lisa and Sam are the loves of each other's lives even though they both see themselves as the victim of the other person's behavior even though they both think the other person has hurt them in a way that they've never been able to heal from I think Sam would have taken it like, you know, this seems I think in a way it's probably the perfect excuse for her to go home to Benford and to have some sort of reconciliation with Lisa because she still misses her. And even with everything that Lisa is accusing Sam of, like she even says herself, she's like, I still miss you, too. Chapter two, wounds that bind. Themes of addiction run through this story. Despite the toxicity of the relationship, Sam and Lisa are two characters who seemingly can't live without each other, constantly drawn to the other. It's like the wounds and memories of the past have left such an imprint they've become tangled up and confused. 
It makes me think of a quote from the film version of Dangerous Liaisons, where Glenn Close's character says, When one woman strikes at the heart of another, she seldom misses, and the wound is invariably fatal. There's a real venom that comes out of this cast of female characters, with poison in every word said and unsaid. Well, I I often think what's not being said is sometimes the most interesting part of both a novel and real life. You know, I think it's it's those spaces, those moments of silence where there's so much unsaid and you're kind of trying to interpret that. Um, And I suppose they're, you know, they haven't seen each other for 22 years. And, you know, there's 22 years worth of, I suppose, things to say to each other that they still don't even, they're not even able to sort of articulate that property because they're almost afraid of saying, I suppose, the full truth to each other until the very end of the book, until like the climax of the book, when when finally I think it all comes out from, from both sides. I mean, I've been a teenage girl and like those, God, those friendships that you have at that age are very intense, you know, like very almost codependent and you're just so enmeshed in each other's lives and you just, you are, I suppose, as you said, sort of addicted to each other. And, and I think those experiences as a teenager, they go they go very deep, those wounds. You take us from present day, the beginning of 2022, back 22 years to what happened and their, you know, their formative years of their relationship and to that, the night in question, you know, the night that they they remember ever so slightly differently. You read those passages in the past with increasing horror as it becomes clearer that this is falling off a cliff. It's almost as if you know, if you read those sequences in isolation, they would have considerably less weight than they do being interspersed with revelations in the present. So I, I loved the juxtaposition of this incident in the past with jeopardy in the present. And every time you go back closer to that fatal night, we know a little bit more and they become harder to read. And in isolation on that night, it may have been nothing. Both parties might have completely misremembered. But that doesn't matter, does it? Because you raise the stakes so high with Sam going back to Benford that I'm reading and I'm going, I, 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 every time you took me back, I was like, no, I, I, I'm exhausted. You know, and as a writer, I was going, no, come on, we've got to get, we've got to get through this. This is, this is wonderful. Was that, was that flipping backwards and forwards? Was that always in your mind for how you would write the narrative? Yeah, no, it was um, because I, there have been sort of a few iterations where I was kind of playing with different ideas, and initially, I think I had had. A flashback and then I had taken it out and then I thought you know what no I really want that to kind of run through it um, and I think it was because obviously you know I um I was uh, like I've written YA um, in the past and I really didn't want it to feel like a YA novel um so I suppose it was trying sure. to use the flashbacks sort of sparingly make sure that they felt like really impactful and that they felt like they were really sort of you know doing their job but I also thought that it was really important to kind of have this insight into what their relationship was like when they were teenagers because I do think as you said that sort of like raises the stakes and it also I think for the reader it explains a lot like I think when you see how close they were when you see that how much love they had for each other when you sort of see that they really were as I said each other's soulmate in a way I think it just makes everything that happened just even more like devastating and I suppose you're even more kind of invested in finding out what exactly happened to tear these two people apart. One of the most difficult sections to read in terms of being 
trying to put myself in Sam's shoes is the scene where Lisa is trying to summon up the courage to say that she's been asked out by Sam's ex, the person that she ends up being married to. And Sam does absolutely everything to suppress the utter horror, fear and anxiety and her world falling apart and, you know, just kind of keep it, keep it casual, keep it cool, keep it teenage. Yeah, it's fine. You know, whatever. Whereas actually, you know, you're holding the book in your hands. This girl's life is falling apart in that room and she wasn't she she wasn't expecting it it's heartbreaking in a way mm-hmm. because that's just an innocent you know sort of teenage high school people date everybody everyone dates everybody right i'm from a small town and believe me there was a lot of swapping around <laughs> because there's only sort of you know a limited amount of guys and you're like okay well you know what can i do and yeah and i suppose you know especially i think it was interesting for me now Sam and Lisa are like just a, a few years older than me, but like having come of age, I suppose, in the early 2000s and, you know, trying, I suppose, with the flashbacks to also give a real sense of like what that time was like. And, you know, the sort of expectations that were put on girls, you know, you kind of had to act like you didn't care. You had to act like the cool girl. You had to act like, oh, it doesn't matter. And you're know, like that it was sort of seemed very unfashionable or uncool to seem like that you were bothered by anything. And then, I mean, also, like, which is really at the heart of it, is that there was no education around what consent was, like, what a consensual sexual experience looked like. And I think there was a lot of very confused young people. I mean, I think there probably still is, but particularly at that time when that just was not a a conversation. Yeah, and I think that's really at the heart of this as well, where I suppose that maybe both Sam and Lisa have no real understanding of what consent even would look like. There are some beautiful touches and nods to the past that that provide wonderful colour. You know, the sense of, of Banford, the place as a character is great, but the music, the technology, the, the diner, there is one amazingly brilliant, genius teenage excuse for there being an empty bottle of liquor of some form under the bed that's found, <laughs> which is that it becomes, oh, don't worry, it's part of a ship in a bottle. <laughs> I mean, that is that is. That is next level teenage thinking on your feet, isn't it? I loved that. (laughs) Honestly, sometimes I think I put these things in just to entertain myself. I'm like, ah, that's gas. (laughs) (laughs) I do do it all the time. Even if I'm the only one that finds it funny, it's still worth doing. I know. Chapter three, the darker side of social media. Inventing and presenting a perfect version of yourself on social media may seem like a harmless act, but it can quickly become a suffocating experience. As your fans increase in number, and this persona you've created grows a life of its own, a huge weight of responsibility is shoved onto your shoulders. You now need to live up to your own hype. It feels in the book as though Sam fears being trapped, and yet she's trapped herself, in a way, by creating this narrative of influencer or business owner and of oracle to her girls. The question is, does she resent that? When a person builds their life around their online presence, can you ever really walk away? And actually, would you even want to? I don't, you know, that's a really good question. And like a part of me thinks, no, Sam is addicted to the validation. Like I think that she would always need to, you know, be able to post things on Instagram and to have, as you said, all of her girls tell her how beautiful she is and how amazing her skin is and how much they love her and how much she's helped them. And like, I think that she is someone who sort of feeds off that energy. But I do agree with you. Like, I mean, I 
when I look at influencers, I just think it looks like a really difficult job um, because you are mining your own life for content. And, you know, Sam has found a way to sort of monetize the most traumatic things that have ever happened to her like whether that's her childhood or um you know her like a sexual assault or you know anything like that she sort of found a way to make that profitable but i do think as you said like when you're letting people in and you have to like i think if you're an influencer you have to let people in like that's part of the job that like you know that you get paid to do this but that you have to allow people access to your life and to your family and to your home and to your sort of your innermost thoughts and feelings and I suppose then it's very hard to say actually enough. Like it's very hard, I think, to, like Sam, I think, would find it very difficult to set boundaries then and say this has gone too far. And, and like, and I suppose you really see that in the book when the when the allegations of abuse kind of are leaked or are made public. They're her girls are some of them are, are defend her and then others are furious because I suppose that she has led them to believe that she is this paragon of like you know that she she is the way you know that she is she will lead them to prosperity and happiness and and um and recovery and healing and if if she is flawed and if she has done something like you know like lisa is saying that she has well how are they supposed to trust her like there's a real anger there i think and it's just a very like i find the parasocial um, relationship you know that people have with those that they follow online I mean I do find it really fascinating um and I think that it just again when I was when I was writing the book I thought god I just this is just so I don't know as I keep saying it's like really ripe for exploration and I think as a writer you're always looking for those kind of topics that feel really meaty and like you can really get your you know your teeth stuck into it yeah completely and what start you know if we think about the you think about the girls and the the Instagram followers as a character in their own right you know, you start off with roomfuls of people, you know, screaming, yes, queen at her, you know, and she gets that validation. It doesn't take long for the darker side of social media to creep in, initially in the form of a falling follow account, then in the end of a whole bunch of stuff of, on, you mentioned Reddit when we were talking earlier, a whole bunch of stuff on on Reddit that gets pretty dark, then into this crisis management notion of trying to locate the IP address and, and, you know, and tracing that back and the things that are being said, because when you're online, you can be anybody, there's no filter to the hate is that you, mm. you can, you can be anonymous and therefore say things that you would never dream of saying to somebody's face. It's much yeah. harder to say something hateful to someone's face. Yeah. Whereas if you're masquerading as a bot, you can say what you want, can't you? Yeah. And I mean, I think that, you know, I do think it's important to acknowledge that, If someone has fucked up, right, if someone has or if someone has said something offensive or if someone has done something that is criminal, of course, I think that should be called out. And I suppose it's really important to sort of say that there is a difference between legitimate criticism, even though for the person at the centre of, I suppose, receiving that criticism, that's never easy to hear. But there is a difference between legitimate criticism and between trolling. And I think that when you get into trolling, where when it's not, let's say, a criticism of your work, but it is like just abusive and like really hateful, like that can be very frightening to be, I suppose, the target of that. I mean, I've experienced it myself um, and, you know, I have other friends who are writers or journalists and it is very difficult, I think, sort of trying to exist online and trying to to deal with that kind of um, 
toxic um, hatred. Um, and I suppose with Sam, I wonder at times is she maybe conflating the two that, of course, that there's going to be legitimate criticism if allegations that seem like very legit allegations of abuse have been leaked then of course people are going to have questions and of course people are going to be criticizing her but of course you know there is as i said that line between when it feels as if people are like deliberately targeting her because let's say she's a woman or you know i suppose it's, it's just trying to differentiate between the two of them um i don't know if sam is very good at <laughs> i don't know if sam is very good at doing that i think she just wants adoration um you know she wants all of the positive aspects um of uh, being sort of a superstar online um, without kind of dealing with any of the negative parts. Just one final comment. There's a there's a section in the book about, you know, when we're trying to work out who to believe and who not to believe. All of Sam's alternative well-being therapies and, and this notion of memory and of remembering, I did get the sense that there is a possibility that through all of the work that she's done in terms of wellness and memory and remembering, she has actually convinced herself that what she thinks happened happened that way, whereas there is a distinct possibility that it might have happened completely differently. I was really interested in the notion of trauma and treatment of trauma. And I was speaking to a writer whose episode is coming out later on, and she's talking about generational trauma. And she mm. talks about three things. She talks about the traumatized self, um, the survival self and the healthy self. And I was trying to work out, you know, where, whenever I'm watching Sam or whenever I'm spending time with Sam, which one of those three parts of the traumatic um, survival and healthy self is she being? Because if you'd have ended it by, you know, saying, for example, that she's convinced herself that this happened, then actually something else happened, that I would have found, you know, entirely authentic. I was fascinated by everything that she's done to protect herself that's cost her something in some way, hasn't it? I know she's benefited and profited from it, but it's probably chipped away at her soul a little bit as well. Yeah, and I mean, I think I am really interested in even just how trauma and memory intersect. You know, there has been studies done that show that um, trauma impacts the part of the brain that sort of collects memories. Um, so often with survivors of, um, of uh, abuse, particularly let's say something like sexual violence, the way in which they remember things might not always be linear. And that's often used then, I think, as proof, you know, quote unquote proof that they're lying. And it's just a lack of understanding sort of about how trauma works. And I think, when, as I said, when memory itself is so fallible, like it is scary, I suppose. It, that, it, that is a scary thought, you know, that I suppose that someone could remember something in a very um, different way to you. And like when I wrote Asking for It, um, which is my second novel, which dealt, you know, with um, a young a woman who had been raped, like afterwards at events I would always have women coming up to me and men as well you know so it was survivors of sexual violence telling me their stories and often they would say but you know I really don't think the other person sees it as rape and that really stayed with me because to think that you could have two people in a room and when they left that one person could think what happened in that room was the most traumatic thing that ever happened to them and the other person might never think about it ever again yeah, there's just something in that that I suppose is so disturbing um, and frightening. And yeah, and I suppose, like, as I said, that's that's really at the heart of, the, of, of Sam and Lisa's relationship is that they both truly believe that their version of, of events 
is the is the truthful one. Absolutely. Well, we're recording this on publication day of Idol. The strapline is not everyone we put on a pedestal deserves to be there. It is a triumph. Many congratulations, Louise O'Neill. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Louise O'Neill for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learned? Characters can be abstract. They don't have to be people or even objects. The declining Instagram following that we're fed with each passing page is a great example of this. It's a feature we turn the page eagerly to see, telling us as much about the unfolding story as the words. Not only are there multiple sides to one story, it's often possible every person's recollection is skewed. There's rarely a right or wrong when we're digging through our memories of the past. Acknowledging the fallibility of memory can help you create characters your audience won't know whether to love or hate. As Louise says, sometimes the most interesting parts of a novel are those things that are left unsaid. Leave enough on the table for your reader. Don't feel the need to spell everything out. Their own deductions are often more powerful than words. And finally, take it easy on social media. As writers, we're encouraged to put ourselves out there as much as possible. And while it can certainly be helpful, don't let it overwhelm you. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. Get in touch with me directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information, links to Louise's work and a full transcript of this episode. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 